This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. This is episode 109 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Maggie Winter, the co-founder and CEO of AYR, otherwise known as All Year Round. Originally born as a sister company to Bonobos in 2014, and a year later spun out into its own standalone company, AYR is a women's wear brand that designs seasonless and ageless apparel for everyday life. In this episode, Maggie shares with us her journey from growing up in Hershey, Pennsylvania and working at the local Hershey Museum to working in merchandising at J. Crew for nearly eight years in New York to working at Bonobos, where she pitched and originally launched AYR with Andy Dunn. We talk about the separation process from Bonobos and what it was like to take the business into her own hands, the challenges she faced in running out of cash, and how she had to adjust her mindset from employee to business owner. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love for you to leave us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building AIR, which is A-Y-R and stands for all year round. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Lee. So you are calling in from New York. You're moving to the West Coast soon. Very excited to have you closer by. Are you from New York originally? Oh, no, I'm from a little town. Well, what little town? <laughs> I, you know what? I thought it was a little town. And then I met my husband and his graduating class had 19 kids in it. So I would say I'm from, <laughs> I'm from maybe a medium sized town, Hershey, Pennsylvania. It's where the chocolate's from. The chocolate factory. Yes. I've actually been there because I'm from Delaware. So I have been to that Hershey chocolate factory. If you grew up on the East coast and you are lucky enough, you have been to Hershey park and chocolate world and you've smelled the, the chocolate in the air that used to have factories in town. Um, wow. It's a cool place to grow up. Yeah, that's awesome. What was it like growing up? Did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? I have uh, one sister. She's two and a half years younger than me. And I mean, till the day that I'm 90 and she's 87 and a half, she's going to be the little sister and I'm going to be her big sister. Of course. <laughs> she's, I'm a big sister too. It never gets So old. you get big yeah. sister energy is a real thing that I probably bring to everything I do without even knowing it. What do you mean? Explain this big sister energy. I mean, I know exactly what you mean, but I want to hear it. <laughs> 
it's that ah, you got a lot of confidence. You probably don't second guess yourself too much. You feel responsible. You feel responsible for others. It just feels natural to take on, take on problem solving or take on care. Yeah. Or want to like protect them, you know? Yes. Yes. I'll never Tell them not to feel stop that. doing X and do th- do it this way. And, you know, like, why, why are you keep going down this path? You should be doing this. <laughs> it's so funny too, because I, I have a son. He, he's a little bit over two years old and I don't even quite find that I, as, as into managing him as my own sister, right? Who like, we're just so used to this pattern has been established over time where we check in a lot and um, I've always got an opinion and, and we have this dynamic that for better or worse really works. We're very, very close. We grew up very close and we live close to each other in the city. She and I grew up, uh, we lived our whole lives in Hershey. It was a pretty quiet town. And maybe one thing that was unique about it is that it was a place where you knew the same kids from kindergarten through 12th grade. There was no merging of schools uh, as you went. So unless somebody moved in or out, you knew each other for 18 years. <laughs> and oh my you, God. And then, <laughs> yeah. you, and then you made new friends for the first time as uh, basically an adult. The other thing that's cool about Hershey that I've come to appreciate now that I work in uh, consumer goods and, and creating brand is that Hershey is a company town. The whole town is branded. The center of town is chocolate and cocoa and chocolate Avenue. The streetlights are shaped like Hershey kisses and they alternate between wrapped and unwrapped. And, and it really has like, if, you know, all feels normal if it's all, you know, but it is probably a pretty cool place to grow up. Very chocolate themed. I didn't realize it was so themed like that. Like they kind of own the town. I mean, they're named after it. How did the name happen? Like, I wonder what that story is. How do you start a company and get to get to like name a city after your company? Oh my God, Lee, I can tell you it's named for Milton Snavely Hershey. He founded the town in 1903. He was also founder of the Hershey Chocolate Company. It was, it was his final successful company after failed endeavors in Lancaster and Philadelphia. And I know all of this because my job for many years was to work as a guide at the Hershey Museum of American Life. Did you want to like make chocolate or work there when you grew up? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to work in magazines, I think. I wanted to, I used to go to like the um, the public library. They, they'd they have an annual book sale and they'd sell like old magazines and books is honestly the social event of the season if you're like a really nerdy middle schooler. And I would buy like um, boxes of old Harper's Bazaar magazines from the 90s. And I loved magazine culture, you know, subscribing to People Magazine as a fourth grade, any weekly periodical that came to our house. My sister and I, my parents, we, we consumed, we consumed it all. Like we grew up, I think, in a house, um, where our family unit was really close and we consumed a lot of media, like high, low, everything in between. TV, radio, shows, Broadway shows, books, magazines. And we talked about it a lot. At dinner, dinner is something I remember. We'd always, we always had dinner together, even if it was at 9.30 at night, if that's when my dad got home from work, we'd always have dinner together and we'd talk about what we were reading or seeing. What did your parents do for work? My dad's a lawyer and my mom's homemaker, which is such a like 1950s word. I don't 
I don't like that word, actually. I don't know what 20 is. Like stay-at-home mom, maybe? <laughs> she was a mom. My mom, yeah. feels like a, mom feels like a full-time job, and she was a mom. Yeah. She was a full-time mom. It's definitely a full-time job, that's for sure. My mom was also mostly a stay-at-home mom. She went to work here and there, and I had to figure out how to make dinner. <laughs> See, Tuna helper. That's a skill I'm still working on, Lee. I can melt Did cheese. You know, I had a lot I of can melt cheese on, growing up. I can melt cheese on anything. <laughs> but because my mom was a very good cook, my culinary skills have been delayed. One of the themes I've learned is you learn things as you have to learn them. And that that just, that my husband's a very good cook as well, actually. Yeah, that helps. When you're not a great cook, just marry someone who is. Like, <laughs> just help yourself. All the jobs need to get done. Hamburger, help yourself. All the jobs need to get done. <laughs> it doesn't really matter who does them as long as they get done. So you were thinking you wanted to work in the magazine industry or at a magazine. What were some of your first jobs? You mentioned working at Hershey, maybe the museum. <laughs> the, museum the Hershey Museum of American Life, yep. Yeah. And so what other jobs did you have kind of before and during college? Uh, before college, I had every crap tourist job you could have in town. I was a PBX operator, like sat in a room with no windows and I had set and answered phone calls from tourists who were staying at the family motor lodge in town. I worked as a bus girl. I never made it past bus girl. What do you mean bus girl? Like at a restaurant busing tables? That's right. I was never actually given the responsibility of taking an order or greeting a patron or mixing a drink, but I, I could clean, I could clean the dishes and I could, you know, bring you your food. I had all those summer jobs. I went to the university of Michigan and I worked for the athletic department as a tutor. That was my job. I, I stayed a spring term also. I loved, I loved Ann Arbor so much and I loved being uh, on campus. And, and there was a summer where I, I thought maybe I'd take the LSAT and I worked at as a tutor. And then I, I kept that job uh, during the school year also. So it sounds like you got really good grades. You were at least good at school. You liked school. It wasn't like something that you tried to avoid. You're right. I, I like school. I liked, I like learning. I'm very curious. And I would always like try to figure out how to make the thing that we were doing in school interesting to me. So like I were sixth grade science. Um, I don't think of myself as a sciencey person, but in sixth grade, 1994, whatever it was, I was definitely a nail polish person. And so I made my science project consumer report on, you know, what's, what's the best nail polish? I tested opacity and ingredients and toxicity and viscosity. And I really got into, it was a reason to get my mom to buy me six different nail polishes at the Rite Aid, you know, and then you end up at the science fair, state science fair. And, you know, it, it, that stuff kind of ends up as a byproduct of doing something that you're interested in. And I think that, that pursuing the interest is the thing that has brought me places. That's interesting. You like connect dots. You find something, you're like, okay, I have to figure out how I'm going to enjoy this science stuff. But maybe if you can connect the dot to like nail polish, that could be cool. Now I'm interested. Like how totally. How do you connect yeah. those dots? What was like, where do you think that comes from? I had a boss, best CEO. Uh, he made such a big impression on me. And he said, you can always connect the dots backwards, but you can never connect them forwards. And I don't know that I 
I think too many steps ahead. I think I pursue an interest and then the big sister energy kicks in or the curiosity kicks in and some combination of that leads me to a place. But I like spending time doing stuff that interests me. And and college kind of felt that way. Like you got to take classes of just the things that were interesting to you. And what were your, what's your first job after college, after you graduated? It was working for that CEO that I so admired. Um, I worked at J. Crew, my first job out of school. Yeah. And how was that experience? You were, it looks like you were in merchandising. So what, what was your kind of like day-to-day look like? Well, I didn't even know for the first few months I was doing it. I think finally I asked my boss, so I know that I'm an assistant merchant, but does that mean that like I'm your assistant and I go get your coffee or does it mean that I'll be you someday? It was really not clear to me what a merchant did or even what what exactly I was supposed to do. I ended up just being sheer luck that that first job was such a great fit and that it was in such a great environment. That was the, I had the best teachers, best, best, best teachers. And that you got to what, hang with the CEO of J. Crew? Hardly. I got to like, <laughs> I got to like exist in his orbit. And, and the thing that was so cool about J. Crew at that time, I started working there in 2005 and the CEO, Mickey Drexler is an icon. He you know, the merchant prince, he built the gap, he brought back G crew, he's still doing great, interesting, fun, new things today. But Mickey liked a management style that was very high touch. And so he didn't have an office and he didn't have walls around him. He had a huge desk and he would sit in an office chair with his feet on the desk and he'd have calls all day. And I was by sheer luck, my, my desk was like, kind of like the first one off his area. And I sat there for, for four years in that seat before, you know, I moved to a few other seats. I spent eight years at the company. And so I got to hear Mickey all day long, just conducting business, talking to friends, making decisions, asking questions. And his thought process made such an impression on me he was always that voice in the room that said the thing that I, as the little person would be thinking. And I thought it was so cool how plain spoken he was. He's very direct. He succinct. He has more experience than anyone else in the room. He's, he's like been a CEO longer than I've been alive. And so he famously liked to operate his business off. He would be on a loudspeaker so that if he was visiting a store in San Francisco or if he was on a vacation in Italy and he happened to see something inspiring, patch him through the loudspeaker and he's all of a sudden speaking to the whole company. Hundreds of people are hearing what a customer is thinking on the floor. So he, his voice plays in my head to this day all the time. That's crazy. And so you say his uh, management style was high touch. Sometimes that means micromanaging, but I don't think that's what you mean. So what other... I guess, takeaways do you have from his management style that you've taken into in your own role as CEO? So many. I can't not hear hear the Mickey-isms and anybody who's worked for him at The Gap, at Banana, at Old Navy, at J. Crutt Madewell knows exactly what I'm talking about. I've had board members who worked for Mickey 25 years ago and we off the cuff know exactly we're speaking the same language already. It's the best 
post-grad degree for anybody in retail is to work for one of these like titans of the industry. But some of Mickey's, you know, examples, no details too small. He would, he would listen to what a customer would say on the floor of the Georgetown store and you'd know about it immediately. He would leave markdowns on desk. He'd want to know what's selling right. Every day I would come to work prepared with three talking points in case Mickey walked by so that I know what to tell him about my business. So I think that being able to communicate succinctly was something that he required. And he really taught anticipation, accuracy, and accountability. Mickey's thought process was methodical and there was rigor to it. You could anticipate after a few cycles, after a few seasons, what he was going to ask and how he was thinking about uh, the business. And Accuracy was extremely important, a lesson I'll never forget. I was presenting an investment to him. We were going to be buying a season of shirts, maybe. And I showed him a shirt he didn't really like. He didn't think it was a good investment. And I made the mistake of saying to him, it's only 2%. And he said, a small percent of a big number is a big number. You say it's only 200, it's only 2%. How, how much money is it? What's the cost dollar investment? And he was so quick on the mental math. If you, you could never say about, you could never say almost. If you say it's 10%, he knows it's 11 and he'll call you out. It was just like, uh, wow, he's so quick. You didn't want to be wrong. So accuracy was a big one. And then accountability. Mickey was somebody who, when I say he was high touch, it felt to me like he felt personally accountable for every aspect of, of the company and the business and the merchandising and the, the experience of the brand. And Again, I don't, I don't know if he's the oldest sibling or not, but to me, that's that big sister energy where you're responsible, you're accountable. Buck stops with you. Yeah, he sounds like he has that big sibling energy for sure. <laughs> um, I have to ask him. I think there's a song out right now about big energy. I'm not sure it's appropriate, but um, it's, <laughs> it's a good one though. I actually am a fan of that song. <laughs> good beat, good beat. So the, that is amazing. So this three talking points, how, why three? Was there a time, like who taught you, hey, make sure you have three talking points ready for the CEO, just in case you have to start talking or he asks you things, like you got to have things to talk about. Or was it just kind of from your own lesson learned of like, oh, I, that was a wasted conversation. I had these things I wanted to talk about and I totally missed my mark. Lee, I didn't come in knowing anything about how to be an employee. So I can't give myself any credit and be like, oh, I, I came up with that one. I'm sure that I was told. And actually my boss's boss's boss at J. Christian now is the CEO of the company. And so I like really had good teachers. I had layers of good teachers. I'm sure they told me exactly what to do. And then it was reinforced by Mickey overseeing a lot of stuff. And so if you're going to get a moment of his attention, you want it to be as impactful as possible. And that theme of how do you do the most with the least, whether it's five employees or five minutes or $5, how do you do the most with it is one that has come back over and over and over again as I've, as I've progressed in my career. That's awesome. And so you spent eight years at J.Crew. What happened next? I loved working there. I worked in different parts of the company, always in merchandising, but I worked in the outlet division first, which was a great unglamorous way to like learn how much 
a button costs and, and yeah, everything about the construction of a garment and about the supply chain. I worked in at Madewell when Madewell was a startup. I worked in it kids crew cuts and I worked in J Crew Women's. And while I was in the women's business at J Crew, a friend of a friend put me in touch with another great leader. His name's Andy Dunn, and he's the co-founder, and he had been the CEO at Bonobos, and that's where, where he was at the time. We had a friend, a good friend in common. My, my good friend was his executive assistant, and she connected us for just an informal coffee, and so I, I met with Andy for coffee, and anybody who's met Andy knows he's an incredibly dynamic person. Yeah, I met him, and I had like brief conversation with him, and he is very like, you just want to keep talking to him. <laughs> and sometimes you want to quit your job that you go work for him, which is what I did after we had He's our very compelling. He's a compelling, charming guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so from that one coffee, it turned into leaving J. Crew and taking an opportunity to create a new brand and to go be an employee at his company at Bonobos. I, I worked for Andy for three years. And in that time, created and launched air. So you're saying you got a job offer at that first coffee meeting? What he offered me at that first coffee meeting was an opportunity to pitch him a story. He said, I'm looking for somebody who has a story to tell. And I said, I've got one. And he said, okay, next Wednesday, you show it to me. So he didn't ask what the story was first? which was a good thing because I wasn't totally clear on it, to be honest, Lee. Oh and God, here we are 10 years lucky. later and I'm still working <laughs> on the story. Yeah, really lucky. I feel like I most said, people I've got that. a story. He said, okay, what, Wednesday you show it to me. And so I, I, I made literally a scrapbook, like spiral bound back to the cutting out magazines, uh, you know, from like childhood. A scrapbook. a scrapbook. And each page of the scrapbook focused on one key piece of apparel and it was kind of probably a reaction to to my job in that J. Crew was a big company with a lot of talented people at it. It had an amazing design team, and there was always like a new version of a chambray shirt or of a classic T-shirt. There was always a new version each season, and honestly, if you hang up all of the versions a quarter after quarter, if you look at a year's worth of of shirts or four years worth of shirts, there's one best always. And I was interested, I wore a lot of J. Crew because I got an employee discount, but at the, at the same time, I was probably wearing a lot of fast fashion too, And but I felt like I need to graduate from it. And I was really looking for an alternative to fast fashion. I was looking for something that would have that classic aesthetic that was worth a bit of an investment, but wasn't going to be like my whole paycheck. And working with designers, I found all these cool people know where to go for style. I don't know where to go for the perfect, you know, green jacket, the perfect green army jacket, the perfect pair of jeans. I'm not scouring. Oh, I don't have a vintage dealer who hooks me up with the best broken in jeans. I wanted to go to a brand for those things. And, um, and that's really the brand that I was pitching to Andy. I put together this scrapbook. Each page had an item, a perfect oversized button down or a perfect straight leg crop jean or a perfect t-shirt that looks DIY, but it, it isn't, it's finished and it's, it's a really nice textile. And that's the book I showed him. So in a world now where we're all digital and it's, I had never made a deck. I 
I didn't have a resume. I, I think again, like lucky. Yeah. That sounds like, well, what was his, his response? Like you must've been so nervous to present this first off. Right. And then you did. And what was his initial reaction? Uh, he hired me. He was like, let's do it. He was like, I, I think he asked me how much do you make? And, and he gave me an offer. And, um, and so it was, we, I remember it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of conversations that we had and it, it was so cool. That sounds crazy. You get to like, basically get paid for a full-time job, creating a brand that you came up with and just build what you want. It was not probably the typical story. And I don't know if I could then, or even now, now I could, but I don't know if I could have then done the, like, I quit my job. My savings are going into my first product or I don't know how I would have made that transition. I, I, I wouldn't have then. It was a great opportunity and a really unique one. And my feeling was I'm going to learn something. I love working on product and brand. And that got to be my focus. That's awesome. And so what year was this when you started working with Andy? I started working with Andy in the fall of 2012. So that's when you started to really just begin this kind of project, this internal brand. That's right. Yes. And he gave me like total access. I got to work with and observe and, and learn from everybody at that company. And that was a company that hired some really great people. And so I got to learn from, you know, what is, how does digital marketing work? The parts of the business building a PNL, parts of the business that had been totally obscure to me as a merchant, um, I got to, got to exposure to. So you really got to get a lot of support to kind of, and this was before they got acquired by Walmart. And so you really kind of got to work with this amazing team to create this brand that you came up with yourself. And so what was the first kind of launch of products? How long from when you first started in fall of 2012 to launching the brand and selling that first piece of product? I started in the fall of 2012 and the brand launched on February 4th of 2014. So the first quarter that I was at Bonobos, I was actually working on the men's business and kind of learning how the company operated and who everybody was. And then I started to build out the air team. How did you guys come up with the name? Did you already have the name when you did the pitch? No, not at all. And to be honest, I'm not too precious about names. I think that Look, I love brands that have some wacky names and so I'm not too precious. Bonobos is kind of a wacky name. Who is J and J crew? How did Nobody they come knows. up with the name Bonobos is what I want to know. <laughs> That's a different podcast. I don't yes. know. And that is a different show. Yeah, there's no J and J crew. It's just a made up thing. The thing that made air click to me was when a guy, uh, this guy, Kevin Kelleher, he was a very early employee at Bonobos. He walked past the desk. We were kicking around names for the brand. He saw AYR and he goes, hmm, all year round. And I can take no credit for that part, but that's for me when the penny dropped, it clicked. And it was like, yes, that's exactly the essence of the thing that we're trying to get to. So you kind of, did you come up with the letters first and then he came? No, oh. no. Our founding designer is Scottish and she has, she, there's a town in Scotland called Ayr. And, oh. and so that's how it ended up on the list. And then he walked by and gave it the meaning that we've then used to brand the company. 
And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to See You podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to See You podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. What were some of the things you learned about launching a brand kind of within a brand that was really helpful and, or that you would just advise other founders or CEOs to kind of do when they're launching a new product? I have a dear friend who's really good at PR because that's what I had. And, and that dear friend became a co-founder. Max is, Max is my, my co-founder. She and I met at the University of Michigan. We never thought we'd have a company together. And when we were creating the brand and then thinking about how to build an audience, she was the first person I asked. She, had, she was working in, in luxury PR, beauty and, and fashion PR. And so I, I took her to lunch, we got pizza and I remember being like, so friendly advice, how would you do it? And then I quickly realized it was gonna require more than one lunch and more than a few pizzas to get Max's <laughs> intel. And um, she joined the team and, and she's now, she's our, our company's co-founder. So how do you, what do you mean join the team? She joined Bonobos with you first or she was already there? No, she, she was working actually at Dual Star for, with the Olsen twins. That was her job when she, when she came and she worked at Bonobos. She came, became an employee at Bonobos with me also and worked on the air team. So we were a team within the company, same as you'd have like a marketing team or, you know, planning team. She held this awesome event. She rented like this loft in the garment district and she invited everybody she knew. And it was so cool. We were up, I remember at like two in the morning building mannequins and we were back in that space. We were back in that space six hours later and our first appointment in the morning was with Vogue. And talk about being nervous. Like for the first one too. Oh gosh, that's a rough one. Totally. And like, and when I tell you that like I wanted to work in magazines, like this is a very glamorous world to me. I had yeah. built it up and sweating. So bullets, you were a little right? nervous, sweating bullets. Little yeah. nervous, little nervous, trying not to show it, trying to play it cool, which I'm terrible at. And the coolest thing was that they were our first appointment in the day. And then in the afternoon, they sent some more people to come. And then in the evening, they sent another group of people to come. And we ended up meeting so many great people. We we had friends and family come. We pre-sold jeans. We had begged our factory to make us a test run. And it was just like the energy. I'll never forget the energy of that that day, that long day, night. It was it was so cool and exciting. We did that in November as a, a chance to hype up the brand. And then the brand went live in February. 
So November 2013, you had this kind of pre-launch press event type of thing, and then launched in 2014 in February. That's right. On the first day of the fiscal year, because your girl likes clean historical financials. And I, I, for somebody who did not go to business school and didn't particularly even like math, I, um, I have a lot of respect for, for reporting and I wanted always to have clean history. So at what point did things start to shift and that air became its own entity separate from Bonobos? What happened was in our second year of business. So I, I started the company launched in uh, 2014. It was in the fall of 2015. I'd been at the company for three years Andy and I went to dinner and he told me that the com- that the company Bonobos was no longer going to fund the brand air. Why? I think that, you know, that's really a better question for, for him. I can't, you know, pretend to know exactly uh, all the conversations that went into the decision. I know that it wasn't an easy one, but the truth is that an inventoried business in its first few years is a drain on cash. And it's, yeah, we were a drain on the PL. He had a company that he eventually was planning to position for acquisition. 18 months later, they did end up selling to Walmart. And I think we just didn't really align with the core thesis of what Bonobos was set up to do. And I think it was right and the, and the right thing to do. I'm so grateful that we got the chance to learn everything that we could with access that he gave us. Um, and I'm grateful that he let us take the brand with us. And that was the conversation that he and I had at that dinner was, you know, good news, bad news. <laughs> Bonobos is not going to fund air anymore. That's the bad news. The good news is that if you can, if you can finance it, if you can fund it, you can take it and you can be its CEO and it's its own separate company. And to me, there was no question. I, I thought this is, this is my responsibility and I'm going to stay with it. So was he like, you know, we got you this far, so I should at least be an advisor or some sort, sort of shareholder here. Like just in case you get really successful, like I created this with you and I should get something. <laughs> it, it was very much a business decision and a business conversation. What happened was I had three months, I had 90 days to negotiate the separation of assets, what portion of the company, uh, what stake in the company Bonobos might retain in exchange for the funding they had provided us with so far. Also, you know, we needed to form a company and finance it. We had actually about a million dollars of product on order at the time that we had bought when we were part of Bonobos that now we were going to have to pay for. We had to come up with a new office space and issue equity and get, you know, a new website built. And we had to separate our IP. We had to do all of this while continuing to run our little business in its fourth quarter, which is, you know, growing business. So it was so steep a learning curve. I don't even know how to describe, you know, the experience. 
Yeah. Well, there's a lot of like strings attached and you kind of have to take each one and like untangle it basically. Right. So it's, it, that's a crazy process. That separation process must've been kind of nuts to iron out, but three months sounds like a, an okay time to try to figure it out. But in terms of funding, did you have to figure, were you like, okay, now I actually have to fundraise because if we're not getting money anymore from Bonobos, how are we going to continue if it's in the red, because it's such an early stage business. That's right. And I had never made I'd never seen a pitch deck before, let alone make one. When I was in school, when I was an undergrad, I studied English and art history and film. Not a lot of finance <laughs> intel there. Well, and the scrapbook isn't really going to be helpful with financial. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. So one of the things we do, um, if you're if you're a film minor uh, at Michigan back in the early 2000s, you had to take script writing class and you studied storyboarding and you had to take an editing class, you had to study storyboarding. And so I would draw out on paper each slide like it was the frame of a movie. This is what it's going to look like. And then figure out how to, we had an awesome team member at the time. She was a recent grad, college graduate and she helped me put together, we put together, we made our first deck and we used that deck to, to raise a seed round. We raised an, uh, a seed round of just about a million dollars and People like Andy participated in that seed round, but it truly was friends and family. And then um, in the process of, of doing our seed round, we ended up meeting our Series A investor. That's great. And so you were able to get the funding you needed, figure out all the details to create the, this new entity and this new business and take the team, hopefully that you you know had at Bonobos and, and use for your own business now and just really just get to the races on your own. Sounds like, you know, it's a bumpy start, but once you got going, how, how were, what were some of the first things you had to do and how did it feel kind of taking everything on to yourself now? The good and bad about starting the way we did is that we started with support and we started with resources, but when those, when that support and those resources went away, we were in over our skis. We had financial commitments that were bigger than uh, an early stage company without that kind of origin story would have had. We had found, we've basically found ourselves up like a little bit too high on the mountain. We had buys that were too big. We had product lines that were too oversorted. We were taking risks on product that we shouldn't have taken. We didn't quite have the right team in place. And it has taken a, a long time. It took, it took years, I think, for us to really get the business in good health. We always grew and we grew 50% or more year over year, but the inverse of what Nikki said, you know, when it's a small percent of a big number, that's a big number, a big percent of a small number is still a pretty small number. So until you have those breakout years, when you trip double or triple your revenue you're in triple digit growth, it's a, it's growth, but it's not really, it's not really changing the relationship of, of, of cost and, and revenue the way that you need, you need it to. And when and why did you start opening stores? I saw online, you have a store on Abikini, you've got one in Soho, in the Hamptons. I'm not sure, you know, if this is updated post pandemic, but curious your thoughts of going into retail. We knew that retail was going to be a great place for people to connect directly with the brand. We spent so much time in those stores and we still spend a good amount of time in our stores. And 
especially early on, it was a terrific way to learn about product and what customers wanted. There's almost nothing better. I would suggest it for anybody early stage with a consumer product, you want to interact with customers directly with the product as often as you can. So it was, it was a, a revenue channel, sure. It was an opportunity to acquire customers, yes. There's all the popular takeaways, you know, you, you have a higher lifetime value customer and all that is true. But the thing that I think was actually best about it is that you could see your customer interacting with your product before your eyes. And that is hard on Instagram or on, on a Shopify website. You can't replicate that experience. Exactly. Yeah. And so what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced since you know, I guess 2015 and in building the business into what it is today, looking back, like what are some of the biggest times that the challenges that you've kind of had to overcome? The biggest one, the one that keeps you up at night is always running out of cash. And especially in an inventory business, like I said, air is an alternative to fast fashion. That means we are slow fashion. We are making financial commitments to raw goods sometimes a year in advance or nine months in advance of even beginning to get paid back for it. So it's a very cash intensive business to be in. And until you can scale, you're losing money every month. And the spin out was a really challenging moment. Adjusting from the mindset of being an employee to being a business owner took time and getting comfortable with conflict and confrontation and making changes and making changes that weren't going to make everybody happy, that took some time. And like everybody, the pandemic was a big pressure test moment for us. And we really turned off all parts of the business that were not absolutely critical. And when we built it back, we built it back from the perspective of sitting in every seat, doing every job as a teeny tiny team. And the lesson I feel like I just keep learning over and over and over and over again is don't do things the way that you think they should be done or the way that you're told they should be done. You have to do what's right for you and you have to figure out how to be yourself in the world. And many times we have found that the best thing for our company is perhaps counterintuitive to what others might see or what we would have thought coming in. Yeah, I think it's really tough. I, I feel like I talked to a lot of founders. I talked to one today, even this morning, and it was like, oh, I think we should go this direction. And, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know. It sounds like kind of a distracting thing towards building a brand. Like maybe you want to focus on building the brand and then do that, if that makes sense. And she's like, no, but it's a, it's a cash cow if I focus on this. I'm like, yeah, but that sounds a little short-term versus the long, going the hard way and building a brand and that, you know, having more of a long-term vision here. But it's always just kind of nerve-wracking to voice your opinion or kind of like advise, quote unquote, because... I can be wrong, you know, and I don't want to, it's hard. I think that founders, they get to a place they want, they need help and they're willing to listen to 
so many pieces of advice and you just have to take everybody with a grain of salt because you really can only listen to yourself internally and figure out what kind of resonates more than other things. But it's, I feel like as a founder, you're always just trying to do the right thing that you get swayed really easily. And as, as someone who has advises someone else, I feel always that pressure to like not be maybe too strong or to just remind them every piece of advice is a grain of salt and you have to do what's right for you. Well, you gave excellent advice and it really is about, it's about doing what's right for you because investors, advisors, editors, they're all hedged, right? They may touch many businesses, but you just have one and you're fully invested in that one. And so you have to live with the consequences of the decisions that you make. And there have definitely been times where I have felt like coming from a place maybe of fear, felt like there were things that I couldn't change. When you're a kid, when you're a student, when you're an employee, there are certain fixed points in the universe that you kind of regard as, okay, well, I can't, can't change this, can't change that. That's the way that, those are the rules. That's the way it's set up. But when you're a CEO and you're responsible for the health and the performance of the company and the people in it, you can change everything. It is all in your control. And really understanding both the responsibility of that and the possibility of that, I think, took me a little bit of time. I like how you say that, the possibility of that, right? Because everybody knows it's like you're the responsible one, but to, have, but to understand the possibilities, I feel like, of where you can truly take your business, I think people kind of forget that. Like it's, it's obvious, but when you're in the muck of it, it's almost like you have foggy glasses on and you really have to see the possibilities and get out. I think it's good to get out of your environment, change it up. You got to feel inspired again, get out of your day-to-day for a second. And like, especially as a leader, you have to have that bigger vision. That's what the pandemic did for us in so many ways. Look, it wasn't the way any of us wanted to experience a shakeup, but you know, it completely made us re-examine every assumption and turned life upside down. And it was it was terrible. And then the um, the shift in perspective and the the choices that we made, you know, out of that have transformed our business and our company and, and our team. Speaking of products, so I want to kind of dive into like, you know, what makes your product so special. I love the jeans. The denim jeans are so cool. I forget which ones that I got. They've got, they're like kind of a mid rise and they're long and they're black. They're a really great fit. There are a couple of fits that I've been obsessed with lately. One is the pop is like the straight leg that we can't keep in stock, but there's one that's out now that just launched called the secret sauce. I'm wearing it right now. I have not taken these things off. They're like, oh, I think it's the riser. I think it's called the riser. You tried the riser. Yeah, yeah. Rise. You know how like um, sometimes people talk about hard pants, like, oh, I haven't yeah. put hard pants on in a week. These are like not hard. They look like hard pants, but they're very soft. No, it's like premium denim. It's really good denim. And it's actually very true to size, which I think is really important. Jeans are like the hardest thing to shop for, I think, online. Hardest, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, jeans, underwear, and swimsuits are probably like my three nightmare categories personally, but... But our jeans are, the denim um, is all, it's made, the jeans are all made in LA and they come often, they come in multiple inseams. So we will, we'll make them in, you know, 
perfect length, whether you're tall or short or in between. And everything that we make has to be really comfortable. It has to be really versatile. And we will go anywhere in the world that we can source the best version of a product. So like our t-shirts come from Peru. We work with a, a Peruvian Pima cotton mill and we work with a uh, uh, really wonderful mills all over the world. Our Oxford cloth comes from Italy and we manufacture globally. We don't produce in, in large batches and we they do tend to sell quickly, but I think that our customers understand that that's part of the philosophy and ethos of the brand. It, trust is something that takes a long time to build and Air, Air is eight years old now and I feel very lucky for the customers that we have because they share, I think, a lot of the same sensibilities around taking a longer view on the investments you make in clothes and they're, they're willing to invest in better quality along with us. Definitely. And so the three items that I tried, it was the, the denim pants, the riser, which are a great fit. Awesome. Highly recommend. Then I got the denim shirt and I have to say, Denim shirts are really tough because, and I don't even have one. This is the first one I've ever, and I'm wearing it right now. This is the first denim shirt I've ever gotten. And denim is so tough because like, I think as a shirt, you want it to feel really soft so it can drape really well. And sometimes it's so hard to looking online or trying to shop for a denim shirt. Cause a lot of times they come too fitted or, and then they're like too tight and, or it's too loose. And so I like this shirt. I personally feel like I want the softer, more drapier kind. And it's also really big. The small is, is really big on me, but that's just a sizing thing and my own personal preference. Otherwise it's really cool. And obviously that's why I'm wearing it. But my favorite piece is the super cool, which is like the cool, I, that was like the one that I was like, yeah, I'm going to try this. Like I just wear black all the time. I'm going to get another black shirt. Okay, fine. No, but this top is now my new favorite out of 25 black shirts, t-shirts that I have probably more than that. This is the one I will wear every day. Oh, that's terrific. Well, we'll have to get you the secret sauce. The deep end is the shirt that it's like the best, best, best. And then there's no perfecting the super cool. You probably just need another one of those. We have so many, uh, we have a bunch of cute styles that are coming out too that like uh, are just what you're going to want to wear four days out of, out of seven. How do you week. describe the super cool to people that are listening and they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. Is this just another t-shirt that's black? How do you describe it? Is it is just another t-shirt that's black, except no, that not. it is so comfortable that you will want to, and I do this on the reg, you will want to work like sleep in it, wear it to work the next day and sleep in it again. And some, you know, like you can shower in there if you want, or you can do laundry. You don't have to. It is like the, it's like a 36 hour t-shirt, a 48 hour t-shirt. It goes with everything. It's because the fabric is so nice. Long staple Pima cotton gets softer as you wash and wear it. It has like almost a silky hand feel. It's not that it's not pilly. It's very drapey to the body. It's very lightweight. And then it has just the perfect proportion. It's easy on the body. It's very flattering. It's a perfect flattering shape because it's got, it's yeah. like not a short sleeve. It's like a slanted sleeve. How do you, what do you call that sleeve? It's not a tank top. It's like half tank top, half short sleeve. 
Yeah, it's like it's it is it looks like it's got a dropped armhole, so it's a little bit off the shoulder. And because it's in a lightweight fabric, it's very flattering. And then it's that self-styled thing where you know, like anytime you try to do this at home with a t-shirt, it ends up looking like you did it at home. And and this one is just exactly perfect. It's it's like it's the exact right proportion in the right fabric. And the best part is that it's not precious. Like you can you throw it in the wash, wear it over and over and over again. And it's always like new. Yeah. With great length, everything. Yes. I'm going to have to get that one in every color. Cause that one was <laughs> like the one that kind of shocked me the most as, okay, this is like my new shirt that I'm wearing. They're, yeah. They're, they're essential. They're not like, they're not label and logo driven, the clothes. They are really about the person who's wearing them. And our company's mission is to create confidence through clothing. It's really about how you feel when you put it on. That's, that's the thing that we are selling. It's, it's that feeling. You said something earlier about adjusting your mindset from employee to business owner. What were some of the things that you had to shift? So many, you know, one, one was really around limiting beliefs having a fixed mindset, believing that there were things that were out of my control or parameters I couldn't change. I think another one was really around being okay with not making everybody happy. I think that being agreeable as an employee is prized. Yeah, it's like a people pleaser, right? We don't generally celebrate employees who are- That's why I'm unemployable. This is why I'm unemployable. You just nailed it on the head. I am not a people pleaser. Therefore, I can't like, but people pleasing I'm not is a good a terrible, employee. But people pleasing is a terrible quality in a CEO. It's a terrible quality. I think quality. in general, honestly, in general, like you Liam can't with you. people pleasing Liam, your whole life. I mean, where what is going to happen to you if you're just people pleasing everybody but yourself? I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. Relation. I mean, this, to me, this is some big sister energy right now, people. <laughs> that's you right. To, that's right. Yes. You have to stand up for yourself, not take shit. You have to just, you've got to be confident if someone's not treating you properly, whether it's in a job, in a personal relationship, in your romantic relationship, you got to get out. You got to get rid of these people. These are toxic people in situations. You see something, you say something. See something, say something. That's got to be the motto and and you have to be direct. And that, that also that sense of you can do anything, but you have to do it. And I think really inhabiting that sense of like a responsibility and accountability on a deep cellular level, it applies to the tactical, practical pieces of running a business. It's not just a a mindset, it's actually how you're going to be spending a lot of your time for many years is doing a lot of shitty jobs. And I think being prepared to put your ego aside and, and sit in a lot of seats that are uncomfortable is something that I probably didn't anticipate when I was going through that sort of transition. And I think it's important to have people around you that support you, that can help lift you up, right? If you're constantly putting yourself in an environment where you're people pleasing other people and you're not being lifted up and you're kind of just going about life, I mean, who's going to help try to lift you up to the next level? Like you can't get there alone. It's the number one most important thing is you need the right people around. You need to surround yourself with a great team and no part of when we talk about connecting the dots the dots wouldn't be going anywhere if not for other people helping me out. And 
whether it's people offering you an opportunity or people joining the team or people sharing a pizza with you and giving you some friendly advice, you need to surround yourself with, with good people. Definitely. Yep. Even just as a CEO or leader, when you think about your own team and that people pleasing aspect, if you kind of like, how do you work with people or do you not hire the people pleasing personality? We've embarked on a really interesting culture philosophy. Like I'm, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm teasing out and I don't have a great thesis for it yet, but in a world where um, we can work in a distributed way and we can work with a small team, we have a lot of digital tools. I think that we can really also change team structure. And so I've been working with, we have a chief people officer who is absolutely amazing. Her name is Mallory Snyder. She's amazing. And she's been really helping me think about how we, how we build a team that's every bit as efficient as the wardrobe that we you know, create or the marketing that we, that we make, like, how do we have the same values externally and internally? And how do we um, make efficiency and high quality and value, like a big part of the culture we're creating. And when I ask Mallory, what makes a good CEO, because I'm still pretty new at this and she's the expert. She says the number one thing is, is hiring. It, people make make the company. I always feel like it's so important to, you know, when people are afraid to speak their mind or have a different opinion to really try to make them feel comfortable in doing so. I personally get afraid of people that aren't willing to speak their truth because I can't read their mind. That's been a big learning to me because like back when I was a little employee and I, my bosses must have been horrified at times, but, you know, I, I think like, I could, let me say what I, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> and, and I was now looking back terribly cringy, but I don't, I don't hesitate to share a hot take. And so it has taken me a very long time to realize that not everybody is that way. And in fact, most people <laughs> are not. And most people are able to like have a thought in their head that they don't feel a need to share with the group, but that's not how I'm wired. And so it's taken a long time and I always want to get better at soliciting feedback, especially if people are um, naturally less inclined to just that, you know, blurt it out. But I think that's why I liked working for like a, a CEO like Mickey so much is because he was a very direct, unfiltered, give a reaction, see something, say something. He always knew what he thought of a thing. And that, that hit for me, that resonates. And I, I like working with people who tell me what they think. You have to hire people, Mallory says this, you have to hire people that you trust and respect so that you can manage them with trust and respect and so that they can treat you with trust and respect. And that is probably the most important criteria for anybody on our team. So before we start to wrap up here, what's some kind of final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are tuning in and thinking, I might want to start something. I think I want to go from that employee mindset to a business owner. As long as that might is there, don't do it. <laughs> the Honestly, might, oh, if you're not like 100%. As, might, as long as the might is there, don't do it. Have a hobby. Like there's nothing wrong with a hobby. There is nothing wrong with a hobby. A hobby is not going to make you, you know, take out a second mortgage in your, on your house. It's not going to keep you up and you're not going to lose 10 pounds doing it. You know, like it, it's just, 
as long as the might is there, don't do it. The thing is, the truth is, it's going to take you a lot longer than you think it will. Nobody wants what you're making. And the reason I say that is that nobody knows that you're making it. And even once you have made it, nobody will know about it until you pay for marketing. And I would really think about why are you doing it? Because there are so many different ways to be involved in the excitement and the learning and the growth and uh, the journey of a wild ride of, of, of a startup without being the founder or the CEO. So I would basically try to talk yourself out of it. Talk to friends who you trust and respect. Get them to try to talk you out of it. And if at the end of the day, you cannot be talked out of it, good luck. You got to do it. Then you know, there's only one direction to go. That's pretty good. I, uh, and hopefully that there's, you know, the, the lack of confidence doesn't get in the way, but that's what it takes anyways, though. So if you aren't, if you don't have enough confidence when people start saying, eh, I don't know about that idea, eh, I don't know, then and you let it go, you're just not ready yet. You've got to build your own confidence. Confidence, endurance, good people, a good sense of humor. Those are probably the best things you can hope for, for uh, if you're starting on the journey. Got to be able to laugh at all the chaos. So what is next for AIR? What can we see coming out soon? Um, do you guys launch new product at a certain time that we should be like checking in on the website or what's next? Oh my goodness. Uh, we just came from a shoot in LA where we were, um, we were shooting new product and there are dresses and tops that are so amazing. I've been waiting for this product for a year and it's a great sign when you've been living with product in sample form or in sketch form or in your mind for a year and you still can't wait for it. We have this, oh, there's a top that I'm just dying for. It's Japanese crinkled cotton. It's called the Puff Puff. I'm afraid it's going to sell out right away. And also there's this dress called the Magic Hour and they just combine all of the comfort that you want from the clothes you wear all the time with freshness. And I don't know about you, but I certainly feel like a desire for that kind of transitional, the music's changing at the end of the movie, it's building, there's hope, it's all coming together. Like that kind of energy, it's been two years of a different energy. And so we're all feeling the energy shift and we are launching new product all spring, summer into fall. And I, I just, I've never been more excited about the company or the team and the product itself. So absolutely air.com checks out on Instagram or on the site. Um, and well, the other way that you can see us is um, we make these catalogs and literally I just like a lot of times I'll just shoot them on Max, my co-founder or, 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 you know, sometimes on her granny, but we make them ourselves and we write them and it's kind of like the grown up version of the scrapbook. And so I guess I don't work in magazines, but I do make catalogs. <laughs> it's some it's part almost of the, dream the has same thing. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like you had a, this vision all along. You just didn't know that the magazine you'd be working for is actually a catalog you'd be creating for your own company. <laughs> that, thank you. You connected the dots for me. Yeah, no, this has happened to me where I have like a vision or, you know, some kind of, you know, vision board and then like something specific actually was like, that's actually not what happened, but this happened and that was definitely similar. So next time I have to be a lot more specific. <laughs> it feels like manifesting. And maybe that's yeah. just the California word, but it feels like manifesting. 
it's a California words and says you living in New York right now, <laughs> moving to Cali soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining on the show. It was awesome to hear your story and get to know you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.